The Lord be with you. And please let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Okay. We have uh, completed talking about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and we are on to question, question 66 and page 48. So if you'd all turn in there, you'll get uh, to it. Where we left off, we had said uh, that the kind, we were talking about the kind of earthly life that Jesus had after his resurrection, uh, which is quite important. I, I should note this is a really uh, important point to be made. There are some who say, well, you know, look at Jesus after his resurrection. How can we say that this is a bodily resurrection when he does certain things like appear behind walls and locked doors, when he vanishes from sight? How can we say that's a bodily resurrection? And in fact, on that grounds, there are some who just deny the resurrection outright. They just say, well, clearly it's not a bodily resurrection, and clearly uh, we have to uh, make some sort of allowance for that and say, well, I guess it didn't happen the way that people have always said it did. But here's the problem. <laughs> By bodily resurrection, resurrection, do we mean that the body is just like our body? It's of the same nature as our body, yes. However, it's glorified, right? And the fact that it is a glorified body means that this body does everything that it's intended to do, yes? That's really important, a really key thing. Um, our bodies are limited, are they not? Um, our bodies... Uh, are liable to decay, yes. Our, our bodies are more than anything else liable to something which we have trouble with, right? What is this? Death, right? The fact that my heart can stop beating at any moment is a liability, okay? Um, and Jesus' resurrected body, does it have a heart? Yes. Can that heart ever stop? No, right, because it's a glorified body, no longer liable to death. Um, and this is what Paul says uh, repeatedly, and it's the, the testimony of the Gospels, uh, that de uh, Christ being raised from the dead never die, will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Okay, so that being the case, uh, we're going to turn to the ascension. Question 66. How should you understand Jesus' ascension into heaven? Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. There he intercedes for his people and receives into heavenly life all who have faith in him. Though absent in the body, Jesus is always with me by his spirit and hears me when I pray. Okay, so the testimony of the Gospels, especially uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, is that Jesus ascends into heaven. Okay. Um, now, where's the body of Jesus? The right hand of the Father. Okay, where's that? <laughs> okay, the teaching is not that Jesus is sort of floating out in the uh, out in the out in the stratosphere or somewhere in the solar system. You know, hang a left when you get to Jupiter, and you'll see him. Uh, it's it's that Jesus has gone to the place of the invisible God, okay? Um, and this, this, is a, this is a very difficult thing for people who see the world in material terms, okay? This is the problem. We think that the only, we really do, we think this, that the only things that exist are those things that we can touch and taste and travel to and the rest, right? Or that we can see on the Hubble Space Telescope. So we say, well, Jesus must be there. But the truth is that this is, this is to say that his body being, being raised, by the way, being raised a spiritual body, meaning not incorporeal, but what? We said this last week. Almost hyper-real, right? Uh, hyper, um, I mean, so corporeal that we can't comprehend it even, um, has been taken up into uh, the Godhead. Now, this is also to say that the place of, uh, of the Son of God prior to the incarnation, which is what? It's the second person of the Trinity, right hand of the Father, all of that, in the ascension, what does Jesus bring with him? Yeah, his humanity, his full human nature is brought up into God. Okay. 
Now, I, sh I should note, this is kind of a fun point. Um, Cyril, of, uh, Cyril of Alexandria has this wonderful uh, thing that he talks about. No, it's not. It's Origen. <laughs> Origen talks about this wonderful thing, and he says basically that this is almost like what happens when you put an iron in the fire. So what is iron? What's it like? It's hard, right? What color is it? It's black. Is it cold or hot? It's cold. Uh, and what happens when you put it in the fire? It gets hot. It gets soft. What else? Yeah, it gets, turns red. It turns a different color. Has it taken on a new nature? No. What is it? It's iron, right? But has it taken on the properties of fire? Yes. Okay. So Cyril, or, I'm sorry, Origen talks about the ascension being like this, that his human nature is brought so far up into the divinity that it, that it becomes divinized. Now, is it still human nature? Yes. Okay. Why is he saying this to us? This gets even better. Guess what gets to happen to you and me? That very thing. Right? The ascension is to say that this is, this is our fate uh, in the resurrection of the dead. So hold that for just a second. Um, what is the result of the ascension? Jesus ascended into heaven so that through him, his Father might send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, Christians are united as Christ's body on earth to Jesus, our ascended and living head, and in him to one another. Um, in the Gospel of John, there are all these wonderful dialogues uh, in about chapters 15 and 16 uh, where Jesus is talking about how he must go away. Um, and he says, I'm, he doesn't say, I must go away. And he's not saying, I must go away and go in the tomb for three days and then rise. He's talking about something else. He's talking about another kind of going away, which is what? His ascension. So he's speaking about this and saying, this has to happen, and the reason he says it has to happen is that if it happens, uh, he will send the Holy Spirit, uh, a comforter, an advocate, a guide. Through the Holy Spirit, we say here, Christians are united as Christ's body on earth to Jesus, our ascended and living head, and in him to one another. Um, our unity as Christians uh, is a fact of being joined together in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Um, not only that, I, I want to say this rather clearly as well. Um, we don't think about the ascension uh, in properly biblical terms. We think about it as just sort of Jesus going bye-bye, right? He's gone. <laughs> How should we think about it? Okay, you should get from this answer that it is for Jesus to be even more with us. <laughs> Okay. Um, because, uh, and, and also, and I think this is something that uh, the Eastern Church has maintained quite well, is to say that uh, by this gift of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, we also have the gift of uh, the Holy Spirit, which draws us uh, and, and actually um, uh, draws us into God. Okay. All right. Any questions there? So this is often a really tough one, but it, but it does it does have an effect on all kinds of things that we teach, right? If if Jesus is living in a physical body, uh, up somewhere in the stratosphere, where can he not be? Here, okay. Um, he can also not be in the sacraments, for instance. But if the meaning of this spiritual body is that he can be in a de indeed um, fully present, indeed anywhere. That indeed this, this spiritual presence of Christ, uh, especially by the Holy Spirit, is, is to say that, that Christ can be everywhere, um, uh, anywhere that, uh, that, that he desire, desires to be. Um, and this is to say uh, that, that um, the objection of a lot of people to believing, for instance, that Christ is present in the Eucharist is to say, well, his body is in heaven. Um, and, and I think the response is to say, yes, but it's a spiritual body. Uh, meaning that it's not like our bodies in the sense that we're limited, right? Um, so this has major implications. All right, now we're going to talk about being seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean for Jesus to sit at God the Father's right hand? The throne on the monarch's right was traditionally the seat for the chief executive in the kingdom. Ruling with his Father in heaven, Jesus is Lord over the church and all creation, with authority to equip his church, advance his kingdom, bring sinners into saving fellowship with God the Father, 
and finally to establish justice and peace upon the earth. That right hand is more than just the hand of getting stuff done, okay, as a chief executive. What is it? It's the hand of power, and it's the hand of justice. So this is to say that uh, Jesus reigns over this world as an exalted king. Um, he, rules, oh, he rules with his Father in heaven, and he's Lord over the church and all creation, with authority to equip his church, advance his kingdom, bring sinners into the saving fellowship of God the Father, and finally to establish justice and peace upon the earth. Well, this raises an interesting question. If Jesus is in charge, then why do things go so badly? Go ahead. Well, you can always answer free will. Uh, <laughs> free will is sort of like the great cop-out, right? No? And it's not a bad one, really. <laughs> it's just to say that uh, I, what, I, what I'm really wanting to get at here is to say that, um, that, you know, just like in any kingdom, right, is the fact that, does the fact that we have a governor or a president mean that everything will be right? No, not at all. Uh, but it means that Jesus is about the work of making things right. He's reconciling all things to himself. And he has the power and authority to do so. Um, right. Well, and also, how boring would that be, right? Um, <laughs> I, think, I think this is to say that, that the mastery of Jesus over creation and over the church is, is a, of a dynamic kind. Um, and that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not just to say that he just has the power to snap fingers and get it all set. Um, it's to say that it's, it's much greater than that, right? Um, I mean, I think about it this way. Say I'm, say I'm working with a couple who's having marriage problems, right? I can't just sort of say, you guys need to be nice to each other. How does that work? Yeah, it doesn't work at all. Then they leave crying and in tears and thinking, we're never going to stay in prison. This is going to be awful. This is going to be horrible. Okay, but if I do something else, which is what? Pastorally guide, teach, correct, care for, yes? Then there's a chance, yeah? This is really important. It's to say that not only is Jesus about the work of, of, of setting things right, but also for caring for us, for, um, for guarding us, for protecting us. Okay, so I want to say that clearly. Do you have a question? Yes. So does that mean that history is progressing Well, I think there are, two, there are two essentially Christian views. One is that history will consistently progress and progress and progress until there's this final uh, making everything right. Okay? Or the other Christian view, which is that everything's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus puts it all back together. I think, I think that's probably about right, is that it can't really be both. Um, now, I only say that because it kind of literarily stands true, yeah? I mean, you see this happen in all kinds of things where it, it just seems to be the case that, um, that uh, from, the, from the perspective of the saints, put it that way, that's their view. Um, and I think that's about right. Go ahead. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a certainly important thing to keep in mind. Um, however, I mean, there's a strand of thinking which says that even even that's going to get worse, um, and and even that's not going to appear to be entirely full. Um, so so I think we have to kind of keep all this in perspective, which is to say that um, that the lordship of Christ. Um, doesn't have necessarily the consequences we want it to. Yeah? I think that's really important to say that. Go ahead. Well, I think I was just saying there, there, are, two, there are two Christian perspectives. One is that things are going to get worse. The other one is that things will probably get better. Uh, but there's not a whole lot in between. Um, and that's, that's simply to say that um, now, of course, you can, look, you can look at the last 2,000 years, yeah? You could say, well, so what's gotten better? Have things gotten better? In a lot of ways, yes, right? We've got running water. We've got much better health care. We've got all kinds of great things. At the same time, 
That's only one side of things, isn't it? Well, there you go. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's a really key thing. Uh, and and so I want to I just want to put this kind of this understanding of Christ reigning in heaven in perspective, um, which is to say that um, that um, that he is about this this work of you know. And, and I think this is the other thing that we can see through time, right? Think about the great progress of evangelism and gospel mission through the last even just the last two hundred years. Um, amazing things have happened. Um, amazing reach, of, amazing um, penetration of the gospel into the world has taken place that has never been seen before, just in the last hundred years. Um, so that's another thing to keep in mind. So he does reign over the church as well. But here's the next one. What does Jesus do for you as he sits at the Father's right hand? Noting my needs and receiving my prayers, Jesus intercedes for me as our great high priest. Through Jesus and in his name, I am now granted access to the Father when I make my confessions, praises, thanksgivings, and requests to him. This is, this is the big key to understanding uh, the, the, uh, the high priestly prayer at the right hand of the Father. Okay. Um, it's as if, it's like this. Um, if you had somebody who lived in the White House that was your friend, do you think that make a difference? Yes, right? Okay. Baylor Bears. Do you think it would make a difference for Baylor if there was somebody connected to Baylor who was living in the White House and had the ear of the president? Yes. I mean, I guarantee you that would be all Baylor talked about because it would just be this big deal, right? Uh, and it would be, right? Because there's this, there's this prestige involved. Well, take that and multiply it by a thousand plus. So just to say that um, both, and this is the best part, one who is one with the Father and one with us is at the right hand of the Father. A perfect priest um, interceding for us at the right hand of God. Okay. Um, making all confessions, uh, praises, thanksgivings, uh, all requests uh, uh, valid and efficacious before the throne of God. Okay. How does your knowledge of Jesus' heavenly ministry affect your life today? I can rely on Jesus always to be present with me as he promised, and I should always look to him for help as I seek to serve him. See, there's this, there's this mystery in the ascension, which is that Jesus is both with God and with us. Um, I, I think it's a mistake to say that he's only with God and not with us, that he's only bodily present with God and not bodily present with us. That is not the message of the ascension. Uh, the message of the ascension is that he, he can be both at the same time. Okay. Um, shall we move on? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. What does the creed mean when it says he will come again? Jesus promised that he would return. His coming in victory with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. The present world order will pass away and God will usher in a fully renewed creation. To stand forever, all the saints will be brought together with God at that time. All right, let's break this down a little bit. Jesus promised that he, that he would return. Can we agree on that just, just quickly? Okay. He says over and over again, I will come back, and you know, I will come back to judge, I will come back to save, I will come back and there will be the resurrection of the dead. Uh, it's a, there's a lot. Um, his coming in, in victory with great, power, with great glory and power will be seen by all people. Okay. How is it seen by all people? The dead will rise to see it. I mean, this is, this is, this is what, um, you know, think about it from the perspective of, of what Job says. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last I shall, what is it, I shall see him. Okay. So this is to say that on, on the last day, the dead will be raised, and we will see. And this age will be brought to an end. What does that mean? Ages are sort of hard to get entirely for us. Um, but it means to say that um, the order of this time, uh, the way in which things happen right now, will be over. Um, the kind of, I don't know, how about this? A great, a great way to put the age would be to say the current, the status quo. Will come to an end. What's the status quo? 
we die, yeah. We daily struggle against sin. Okay, there's another one. What else? We struggle with all kinds of diseases. We struggle with all kinds of maladies, all kinds of injustices, all kinds of things that uh, are, are troublesome to us. All that passes away. The present world order will pass away. And God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. Now note, we do not say a brand new creation. What does it say? A fully renewed creation. Um, this, is, this is to say that uh, what the Gospels speak about, contrary to the popular imagination, is not uh, kind of earth being uh, destroyed by an asteroid and blown up, as exciting as that may be. But what? A clean slate. Okay? A clean slate for creation. Um, to be renewed. Let me give you an example of this. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I, we bought a house in California that was built in 1978. Okay? And the kitchen had been uh, painted since then. The cabinets and all. So then they'd gotten some new countertops. and Actually, I don't know that it had. Uh, but it, it was... And it had gotten some new flooring... But under all that was linoleum from 1978. So when we bought the house, we had a choice. We can either leave it as is or we can redo it, right? Now, we also had the choice. We could have just torn the whole house down, but that would have defeated the point, right? Because it was still sound in certain ways. So what did we do? Well, one week I went in with a sledgehammer and a crowbar, and I ripped out every cabinet in the kitchen. Uh, and then put in all new cabinets, all new flooring, all new everything, really. I took it down to the studs. I renovated the kitchen. Does that make sense? I made it new again. Now, it is both a new kitchen, right? We call it that, right? And yet, it's the same kitchen. You see the point? Okay. So it is both a new creation, which Jesus comes to usher in, and the same one. It has been renewed. So we can say both things about that. And I think that's quite, quite right. A fully renewed creation stand forever. All the saints will be together with God at that time. Um, which is to say that, uh, that uh, this speaks more to judgment, but that in the judgment, um, not only will those who are living be around, but those who are dead and have been raised will be around in the same in the same place when should you expect jesus return jesus taught that only the father knows the actual day of his return god patiently waits for many to repent and trust in him for new life yet jesus will return unexpectedly and could return at any moment um this this is this is such an important part of Christian teaching that gets so often missed, uh, which is that uh, sometimes in our kind of apocalyptic uh, intrigue, we get really excited about these things, and it occasionally occurs that somebody will say, well, I predict that it'll be in October of this year. Um, and we wait around, and October passes, and nothing happens. Um, and, and it's very exciting, and a lot of people believe this. When we were living in California, there was a guy who had convinced everyone of this, and uh, you know, people were selling their houses and living in trailers in the desert waiting for this to happen. Um, because you have to admit, and there, there's hope in these kinds of predictions, yeah? Um, my, my house is underwater, right? So I might as well just kind of accept the foreclosure and go for it. Um, I am sick. I have cancer. I'm going to die. Why not? Okay. So all of this seems to make uh, immense sense. Yet... Uh, the Christian understanding uh, is that um, Christ's return uh, is both um, delayed and imminent at the same time. And not only that, uh, but that we actually can see this, uh, this end in all things. Um, we refer to this as, uh, as Christ Christian eschatology proper. Okay? Uh, eschatology is not just kind of the study of the fantastic end as we read about it word for word literally in Revelation. Um, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> but but is about this, this built-in anticipation of the end of all things, which is built into the Christian life. Um, that's an essential part of this. All Christian worship, for instance, is eschatological. Um, churches... Do you, know what, do you know how they're built traditionally to face? East. Why? 
The sun rises in the east, and we're told that Jesus will rise in the east. Um, so we face east. Christian worship is done in expectation that at any moment in the midst of the liturgy, which is, by the way, an ongoing thing all the time, that he will return. So when it's focused like that, we see that happen. Um, so uh, it is to say that, that uh, well, we'll move on to the next question and answer, but, but it is to say that this, this is coming. What should be your attitude as you await Jesus' return? I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus as the completion of my salvation. The promise of his return encourages me to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. So this is this anticipation with joy. Um, Have you ever uh, been about to leave on a trip and you get everything packed, right? And you realize... Yeah, I got some more time. I don't have to leave right away. But you're just sort of sitting there and bored and thinking, I'm all ready to go, but it's too early. That's about right. Um, this anticipation with joy um, is to say, you know this trip is coming, you know that it's going to happen, and you're ready, but it's not happening. Um, there's this uh, anticipation which is built up. Um, we should be encouraged, uh, and I, I think often we think of this as, as supremely discouraging, and that's, that's uh, very tempting. I mean, certain portions of the New Testament are devoted to this. I mean, keep in mind, first century Christians believed in many ways that the return would happen immediately within their lifetimes, very, very, very soon. And one of the struggles in the ancient church is, you know, here's grandma, this faithful Christian who dies, and, and the return hasn't happened. What do we make of this? Uh, Jesus said that we would not see death before he comes again. So what do we make of all this? I think the, the, uh, the struggle, and indeed the, the calling is, uh, to say very strongly and, and, to, and to live in this way, uh, that uh, we live in daily expectation. Uh, we live in regular and, and intentional preparedness. Um, and that we, um, we seek uh, to even have that redemption now. Yes? I mean, why not? Uh, so this is a very, this is a very key thing. And it's, it's an important thing that um, Christians have, have considered through the years, which is through the centuries, which is, you know, why wait for judgment to see redemption? It's kind of like, why, why set down our tools? Why set down the work? Uh, the work continues. Um, so, you know, read, read the Thessalonian correspondence, and, and you'll see Paul just calling them to not slack off, uh, calling them to continue to work. Um, the reason he says to the Thessalonians, you know, he who does not work does not eat, is that some are so living in anticipation of the second coming that they just stop doing anything. They kind of give up. They sort of say, well, who cares? It's, it's all going to come crashing down anyway. Who cares? Uh, I think the point is that this is not the proper attitude of those who await judgment. Um, it's not the proper disposition for sure. How should you understand Jesus' future judgment? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the world as we know it will come to an end. All that is wrong will be made right. All people who have died will be resurrected. And together with those still living will be judged by Jesus. Then each person will receive either eternal rejection and punishment or eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. Not only will the world as we know it, I put that clearly, as we know it come to an end, but so does the present order, which is that uh, the present order is that the wheat and the tares are still growing together, yes? That we still experience this, this, this truth, which is that, um, that we live as a scattered people. Um, all who have died will be resurrected. So this is the teaching of the resurrection of the dead, which is so often neglected in the church today. Um, you know, keep in mind that most, most American Christians believe that um, I'll, I'll die and my body will be sort of sloughed off uh, into the sludge of creation and uh, I'll never see it again and thank God because I didn't like it anyway, okay? <laughs> and, and, uh, and that'll be it, right? And I'll just sort of be a disembodied soul forever and ever, amen. This is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach instead that as a consequence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all the dead will rise. 
Um, this, this, in fact, it can be seen in either way. It's either as a consequence or the fact that the resurrection has proven that this is the fate for human life, to be raised. Um, and it's not just the righteous, but all together um, with those still living will be judged, and, and all will be judged uh, by Jesus. Then each person will receive either eternal rejection or punishment or eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God. This is to say that judgment follows the resurrection of the dead, uh, and it is to say that, um, that uh, judgment is final. Okay. How should you live in light of Jesus' coming return for judgment? Because I do not know when Jesus will come, I must be ready to stand before him each and every day of my life. I should eagerly seek to make him known to others, and I should encourage and support the whole church as best I can to live in readiness for his return. Okay? Readiness does not mean stock up five-gallon buckets full of uh, you know, edible items and potable water. Right? What does readiness mean? What's that? Yeah, right living. Were any, were any of you Boy Scouts? Okay. Be prepared. No, this is always as a Boy Scout. You kind of you always kind of learned that to be prepared. See, you'd always kind of. I, I was a Boy Scout, and we'd see this happen with various Scouts. They they'd pack way too much in their backpacks for a trip. And how would they be on a backpacking trip? Miserable, right? Miserable. It was terrible. Because it was so heavy, and they brought all the wrong stuff and none of the right stuff, right? Um, this is to say that I think I think we often uh, we we very much need to keep things in very in a good balance, right? Um, we are so concerned about having everything in our life right in place, yes, having enough retirement money, having enough uh, of a house, having enough of a car. Uh, that we often forget that we need other things more than that. Um, so I, I think it's important to, to think about think about that balance that we need to have, which is to say that um, is it important to save for retirement, even given the judgment, even given the fact that judgment is coming? Yes. Okay. But do you need five billion dollars to do that? No. Is it important to have an emergency fund? Yes. But do you need you know, all kinds of five-gallon drums in your basement, which I don't know how people in Texas do this. No, right? You've got to keep this in mind. Um, of course, also, you know, listen. Uh, how should I put this? Yeah, I don't want to open that can of worms. Okay. <laughs> um, millennialism uh, in Anglicanism, strictly defined, is usually and unabashedly rejected. Okay? So this understanding that, uh, that there's will be this thousand year reign or not uh, <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is quite often just to say, well, we read that in Revelation, uh, but, but it's, it's probably more of something that we need to understand in another, in another, light, in another light than that. Um, so this idea that we must prepare for a thousand years of dismal horror uh, is it's just, just not, it's not a good way to think about anything. Um, and it's certainly not a, not a good usage of, of those texts. Okay. And usually, I should say this as well, usually there's some implicit denial of the resurrection of the dead involved in that as well. Um, so there's, there's this kind of thought that says, well, um, you know, the dead will rise, but they won't be judged right away. It'll take some time, a long time. Uh, no, this is not what's in Scripture. What's in Scripture is that the dead will be raised, then judgment. Um, so anyway, I don't want to go on too long about that. Uh, should you be afraid of God's judgment? The unrepentant should fear God's judgment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. I have no reason to fear the coming judgment, for my judge is my Savior Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for me, and intercedes for me. Um, think about the, the parable of the talents. Yes? What did the first servants do? They took what had been given to them and they did what? They made an investment, right? And they grew it. What's the difference with the last servant? 
The last servant says something very telling when the, when, the, when the master comes back. What does he say? Yeah, I knew you to be a hard man. Do you see that it's simply a matter of their perspective as to who the master is, as to what they do. Um, and so I think this is, really, this is really key. The last servant believes that he faces horrible, soul-crushing, impossible judgment. So what does he do? He just buries it in the ground, does nothing. The others know that the master's a good guy, right? They know that he is just, they know that he's right, um, and they believe that justice will be given to them. Um, and they also believe that what he's given, he expects a return, right? Uh, so I think this is, a, this is a key thing. All of these parables, in that, you know, these parables some, so many of the parables speak about what happens when the master returns. What happens when he comes back? And there's absolutely judgment, and, uh, and the judgment um, is, is uh, largely has to do with, what did you do, right? Now, are we judged on the basis of works? No. But works matter. I'm just going to say that, okay? Works really, really, really matter. Um, because, I mean, here's the, the, the testimony of James is, you know, you can't just sort of say, well, I have faith, you have works, you do the works, I'll have faith. How's that work? Not at all. It doesn't. So here's the thing. If you and I are in Christ, we receive all that he is. Both his righteousness and his actual, uh, and his actual goodness, which is shown forth in works. What he does um, so we await judgment with a sense of saying, uh, we, have, we have a task before us, um, a very important task. Um, so we, we, we live without fear, but we also live uh, making certain uh, that, we're doing, uh, that, we, that we are living in accordance with God's will. And it's really, really key. What does scripture mean when it tells you to fear God? It means that I should live mindful of his presence, walking in humility as his creature, Resisting sin, obeying his commandments, and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. Um, fear of God is not a terribly popular thing these days. <laughs> um, we can often be so familiar with God that we lose all sense that he is powerful and, uh, and awesome, right? Not in the contemporary sense, but in the old school sense, which is inspiring of awe. Um, this is to say that we need to live mindful of his presence. You do know this, right? That, that often when we're tempted to sin, it's when we believe that God isn't watching. Or that others aren't watching. Walking in humility as his creature and not in pride when we think, well, I'm not a creature. I'm a, I'm a creature of my own making. Resisting sin, obeying his commandments, and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power. Um, it's important uh, to, fear, to fear God properly. Shall we pass judgment on sinners or non-Christians? No, God alone judges those outside the church. The church may proclaim God's condemnation of sin and may exercise godly discipline over members who are unrepentant, but I am called only to judge between right and wrong to judge myself in the light of God's holiness, and to repent of my sins. Okay, let's, let's break this one down a little bit. God alone judges those outside the church. This is really important. Um, it's to say, we, we hear this a lot, right? It's uh, this kind of statement of, well, you know, who am I to judge? Uh, don't, don't be a judger. Don't judge. Don't do this. Um, I, I think uh, we need to be a little bit more savvy about that. Uh, and I'll say this as as clearly as I can. Um, you and I need to have a way better attitude about those outside the church than we do. Um, I, th I, think it's, I think it's really key that we, uh, we understand that simply the fact that someone might even be our enemy is no cause to treat them horribly. Yes? What does Jesus say about our enemy? We're to love them. We're to pray for them. Give them what they ask for, even. Um, you and I are in no position uh, to pass judgment uh, in that way. 
However, you and I are not outside the church, are we? We're inside it. Uh, So there is another point here, which is that the church may proclaim God's condemnation of sin. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. To simply say that that's sin and that's not is not to judge sinners, but to judge sin. It's not to... uh, And may exercise godly discipline over members who are unrepentant. Um, I think if you should be thankful for anything, be thankful you don't have to do that task. Uh, Because I have to tell you, this is not a fun thing for me at all, to have to do things like this. But I have had to do it before, and uh, it's, it's not pleasant. But I must say this. I must say this clearly as I can. I'm always thankful, and the person who receives it is always thankful at the end that there was something that happened in that regard. Um, I've, I have found myself, even recently, having to just intervene and say, yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Because here's the, here's the problem. I, on my own, don't see myself properly, do I? I never do. I never see my actions in the light that I should see them. I really need someone to come alongside me and say, brother, we need to talk. Um, now, I probably won't put it that way when I, when I come up to you, but, but I probably won't even do that. But it's just to say that I think there's a need to have that kind of discipline in the church. There's a great need for that. And it's never wielded as a, as a weapon, ever. Um, it is always just simply to say that, that um, there, are, there are certain times when it's, when it's absolutely called for. Um, maybe I should give you some examples. Um, there have been times in which there has been such a lack of forgiveness in people that I've known inside the church, where people just are like, I am so angry at her, I just can't stand it. I, I, I don't know what to do with myself, I'm so angry. Um, and yet they continue to receive communion. They continue to uh, do all kinds of things with this absolute and utter contempt. And sometimes it, it does fall to, uh, to me, even, as a priest, to say, do you really need to consider whether or not you should receive communion until you can really let go of this? Or to just say, you should not. Um, now, the call is never to just simply say, well, you should stew in your unrepentant anger and, and the rest for, until you can let go of it. What's the call? You need to make a good confession. Um, you need to get it on the table uh, and let God uh, heal it. Um, there have been times in which um, I've, I've known uh, people inside the church who absolutely refuse to repent. They say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that's too much. I can't do that. Um, what you're asking is unreasonable. Um, and let me just tell you, if it gets to that point, it's not unreasonable. Okay? <laughs> there are a lot of things that get let slide occasionally. Uh, but, but it is important to know that, that as Christians we live under authority. Um, it's not wielded uh, with, with a sense of haughtiness, but it's, it's wielded in a sense of saying, we want you to be restored to Christ. Um, so please keep that in mind. Um, I am called, this is the last part of it, I am called only to judge between right and wrong, to judge myself in the light of God's holiness and to repent of my sins. Okay. Do you judge yourself? Really? Some of you are not nodding your heads vigorously. Okay. <laughs> you should say, all the time, Father, all the time. I've judged myself constantly. I am my worst critic. This is essential. We, we have to understand that you and I are, are given a conscience, given knowledge about ourselves, so that we can repent. Not so that we can feel bad. Not so that we can just feel awful all the time because things don't seem to be going right. Um, I'm called to judge uh, myself in the light of God's holiness and to repent. This is a key thing. Repentance from the New Testament's perspective, and indeed the whole of Scripture, is this. It's not simply to give up sin. What is it? Yeah, it's to give up sin and turn to God's will. If you simply give up sin, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to it, right? It, listen, this is, this is AA. AA knows this, right? It's, it's not enough to simply give up the booze, okay? 
If you do that, what's going to happen? You're going to go back to it. First chance you get. What do you have to do instead? Fill all that time, all that energy, all that life with something else. Um, and, and they even know that you're going to fill it with some things that are less than wholesome, right, <laughs> for a while. But the idea is to, to, to fill it. Um, and so uh, we always need to think about this when we think about repentance. Uh, that to simply give up sin is not enough. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Uh, we, we, we excise sin uh, from our lives by God's grace so that he may plant something else. Yeah? Okay. It's, it's like this. If you have a garden bed right now that's overcome by weeds, as many of ours are, is it good to weed the garden? Sure. But it makes little difference if you don't plant something in its place. There will be no fruit. You will simply have a weedless plot of ground. That's it. Um, congratulations, I guess. <laughs> this is to say that, that we need to be about planting something which can bear fruit. Um, how do you judge yourself? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I judge myself by examining my conscience. I may use the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, or other equivalent scriptures, as well as godly counsel, to help me see my sins. We need to see our sin properly in the light of God's revelation of himself um, in order to see it rightly. Uh, If we judge it based upon our own assumptions about what is right and what is wrong, where will we go? Well, Well, we'll try to justify some things for sure. But if we judge in the light of God's revelation of himself, uh, specifically in things like, yes, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, other scriptures, um, we will see this rightly. It's also to say sometimes we need someone to tell us, right? I mean, we seek advice about all kinds of things, yes? This is why we go to doctors and don't just make a beeline to the pharmacy. I know that some doctors are just... uh, perturbed as they can get about, you know, people showing up in their office and say, well, I was looking on WebMD, doctor, and I think I have syphilis. And, you know, and they just say, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just a mess, right? Um, and, and they say, well, what do you want me to prescribe for you? No, that doesn't happen. You go to a doctor because you don't know what's wrong. Um, there's got to be this, uh, this ability to say we do need godly counsel. We do need somebody to, to sit with us uh, and talk with us. Um, this raises a really important practice, which I, I think we need a lot of, uh, which is this practice of a daily examination of conscience called the daily examine. That's something we've actually been actually doing with our kids lately. It's been really fun. It's, it's to, in the light of the Ten Commandments, uh, lead a, a bit of a meditation on What's gone wrong today? So that we can offer that up to God at, at night and say, um, say something effective. We, we, we are sorry for this. Um, and help us by your grace tomorrow. Um, how does the church exercise its authority to judge? A priest acting under the authority of the bishop may bar a person from receiving communion because of unrepented sin or because of enmity with another member in the congregation until there is clear proof of repentance and and amendment of life. But the authority Christ gave to his church is more often exercised by declaring God's forgiveness in absolution. So there are two parts to this. The first part is that um, in the prayer books, there has always been a clause prior to the Eucharistic rite, which talks about this ability to bar someone from receiving communion. Um, It lays uh, certain conditions on this. And the first is that, that that condition is that whatever they've done, it has to be a grave, a grave error. Okay? It can't simply be, um, I saw you smoking a cigarette outside the church. You can't do that. Well, all right. Yeah, smoking's wrong, okay? But is it, is it, is it so, well, is it, I wouldn't even put it in that category. I'd simply say, well, you know, let's, be, let's just be honest here and say, it's probably a bad example. Um, you know, you lied to me about what you ate for breakfast this morning. Come on, that's not a grave sin, is it? Um, other things, though, have a much higher degree of gravity. Okay, so that's the first condition. The second condition is that it has to be a, it has to be a publicly and overtly scandalous act, okay? meaning that um, it has to cause disruption within the parish church. Um, and this can happen a lot, um, but it, it is to say that um, there has to be this scandalous aspect to it. 
Um, and again, this is always a private um, uh, conversation. I do have to, this is really important, I have to call up the bishop and say, I'm borrowing so-and-so from communion. And if he says, well, I think that's a little extreme, well, then it didn't happen, right? <laughs> um, uh, but it's, it's, it's an important, a very important feature. And more often than not, I have to say this, when this has happened, it's been, oh my goodness, I'm, I didn't even realize. I'm so sorry. Um, and they're restored. Okay. Um, more often than not, this, is, this happens because I accuse myself of, so, of something so awful that I ought not receive communion, or that I feel conflicted about it at the most, or at the least. We say this just about every Sunday. If you're cognizant of any unrepentant sin, you ought not receive communion. Okay? So what's the solution? You say to me or Father Ryan or Father Jonathan or Father Canary or Father Cruzy, say, I really need to talk to you. Can we set up a time for confession? And sometimes I'll even say, well, what about right now? <laughs> and it's to say that we want that restoration to happen as soon as possible. Know this. If you... Tell me, I need that now. I will drop literally everything. Um, I will let stuff in my oven burn in order to come hear your confession. I will do it over and over and over again, uh, and I have done it like that in the past. Um, I will drive distances to do it. Um, and the reason, the reason is simple. There's nothing more important than reconciling sinners to the love of Christ that includes you and it includes me. Um, and so I, I want to say this, that um, if, if you experience that in any way, this kind of guilt over uh, receiving communion and you think, oh, I really shouldn't be, don't let that sit very long because you'll get used to it and you'll start to think, well, maybe that's just the way it should be. No! God's working on you. He's working on your conscience. He's saying, this isn't the way it ought to be. Uh, you need to fix this. <laughs> you need to let me fix it. Um, and and come, to come to receive that grace. Um, Jesus left to his apostles on the day that he was risen from the dead the ability and the authority to forgive sin. Is that scandalous? You bet it's scandalous. <laughs> Who can forgive sin but God alone? And yet he tells his apostles, whose sins you forgive and they're forgiven. Okay. Uh, I also want to say this, this as, as, as well as I can. Um, you should never be embarrassed by this, Ever. Right? You should never be embarrassed to repent. You should be embarrassed to sin. That's how it's supposed to be. And yet we get embarrassed by repentance. Um, people have often come to me and they've said, well, you know, I don't want you to think less of me. Trust me, I don't struggle with that temptation, okay? What I struggle with is the temptation to think too highly of you because you're doing something so good and so wonderful. That's the temptation I struggle with. Okay. So uh, I want you to be mindful of this. Um, uh, we four priests in this parish stand ready for that kind of ministry at all times. Um, and, and part of that readiness is to, is to undertake our own confessions personally uh, on a regular basis uh, so that we can be ready to do that. Um, so please keep that in mind. Um, we, don't, we don't simply say, well, come to me, sinner that I am. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, No, it's more like we got to do this too. So uh, 